Hello everyone and a very warm welcome back to Footprints. Today we'll be finding out some of the ways Bath has remembered its dead and one of the places we're going to visit is the site of the old workhouse burial ground. Back in the latter half of the 19th century more than 3,000 people who died in the workhouse were buried with no ceremony and in unmarked graves. The site is up near St Martin's Hospital on Wellsway and we'll find out more from local historian John Payne, whose ancestors are buried there. Later on in the show, Dr Molly Conisby from the University of Bristol, whose research, Death and Dying, will join us and tell us some of what she's discovered. But first, come with me up to the burial ground itself, where on a freezing cold day back in December, Bathscape were organising a tree planting event. And while I was up there, I was joined by Richard White, who told me all about his project, Walking the Names. And we start by hearing part of a poem written by John Payne and read by Martin Bax. It rang for getting up and breakfast for starting work and finishing, for eating and for sleeping, for living and for dying. If you want the parish to support you, you must come into our brave new poor law palace, be stripped, disinfected, washed, uniformed, found employment, not spend our taxes in the alehouse. That was the theory. The practice was rather different. But people put aside Richard, you're the man behind the Walking the Names project yeah. here on the memorial ground. Tell me about that. Well, it goes back quite a while now, about two years ago. Every time there was a Bathgate walking festival, we did a walk out from here. So it was, what more could we do? What's the next thing that we, that we could do? Um, because those were walks that, that had kind of connected in much more into the workhouse over there. So I said, let's get all of the names of the people that are buried here. And there'd been a group who had started working from the old workhouse ledger. And then around about that time, I think that the record office had got them digitised and we then broke it down to the years. And so I sort of made this pledge that, OK, so what I'll do for as long as it takes, once a month, we'll meet here and we'll read the names of every single person that was buried here in the order of their burial. And that's what we did. And we met up as a group and we walked really, really slowly and took it in turns or sometimes reading together the names of the people that were, that were buried here. And it became a very kind of moving and powerful kind of experience walking slowly get into a, a particular kind of a rhythm but then if you add to that well actually you're reading something what happens is your body is kind of got into the idea of walking but we're not walking on a flat surface here you stumble 
and the points of stumble takes you off into something else and, and it's just very powerful moments of realizing actually that hollow that you stepped in well there's probably several buried bodies beneath that I'm just knocking the posts in. It's the best instrument to actually uh, knock the posts in without damaging them. And then we tie the trees to the posts just to support them. So when they're really young, the wind doesn't blow them too much to disturb the roots. What trees are you planting here? These down this side next to the path are all lime trees. Oh, so it's going to be a lovely avenue of limes. here with Julia. Julia, tell me what you're doing. Um, we've got about 46 trees that have gone in today. Some whips and some bigger standards. Um, a nice variety. These are a type of hawthorn, but really lovely berries. The birds to enjoy over winter. Okay, oh, so excuse my breathlessness, it's all the digging. <laughs> <laughs> How deep do you have to dig? It depends on the tree really, size of the tree and the size of the root ball. But for these ones, uh, not too deep, we're probably going down about half a foot to a foot. They've got quite a big root ball, so quite a broad, big hole. Yeah. And there's a man on the other side bashing in stakes. What's the name of the tool that he's using? Do you know? <laughs> I think it's got all sorts of names, but I use the really glamorous term of post basher. <laughs> and most people seem to get what I mean. <laughs> But yeah, that's a really good workout for the upper body, the old post basher. <laughs> I used to have an allotment, but I've there's no muscle memory. <laughs> Digging this, oh, struggling a bit. But yes, hard work on the back. It is, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the Victorians did so much for us, didn't they? And they weren't all so lucky as we were, and uh, we are, you know. And uh, there was such a divide, wasn't there, between the rich and the very poor? The very poor had absolutely nothing, didn't they? So the more we can do, really, to celebrate their lives. I think is lovely and it'll be a lovely area I think for people to come and have a picnic and just uh, just enjoy the the, the area. Anyway I, I, I'm ready to put my tree in now I think. Oh that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh here it comes. Yep. Oh, so this beautiful tall hawthorn with orangey ready orange fruit is going into the yeah, ground. The, yeah, the berries are lovely because they're really quite big, aren't they? Quite plumptious. Plumptious, what a great <laughs> word. I think the birds are going to like them. Plumptious. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. So if you put the turf back in but turn it upside down. Bit of stamping down. Bit of stamping down. <laughs> Why do you put the turf in upside down? Um, we want to, to um, kill the grass off that grows immediately around the base of the tree, just so that it's not got so much competition for water. Clever. In summer. <laughs> oh, 
a funny sort of way. It's got a lot of life to it, hasn't it? Yes, I think so. There's so many stories here, you know. One of the walks that we did for the Basket Walking Festival, we finished up here and, and it was just foul drizzle. And we'd said to some musicians, I didn't know they were the weights then, we said to some of the musicians that we'd be coming and it'd be nice if they kind of could welcome us. And they were under those trees over there in the pouring rain and they play like antique instruments. So they were really kind of protective of their instruments. But they were dressed in sort of orange and yellow old-fashioned bicycle capes. So you couldn't see them, but they were sort of pulsating with this old folk music that was coming out. So we kept in touch and they did, again, a beautiful thing when we came out of the first lockdown. And it was the first time that we'd actually met together in any sort of significant numbers. And it was the first time they played together because they couldn't play together. And it was so moving. I said at the time, they helped us give the people that are buried here the wake that they never had. And it was just lovely. You know, there are people here that were born, you know, in the 1700s. There are people here that were born before the French Revolution that were sucked into Bath in the hope of work or and then it didn't work out for them and, and then they ended up here that would have had probably in their village you know quite a decent send-off and were denied a send-off because they were punished for being poor. We're just ignoring the fact that we might have to dig that hole a bit deeper than we'd actually dug it originally. Oh dear, why? How do you know you'd have to? Um, because the boss came over and said that hole doesn't look deep enough. Oh, and then we've so got another go. three to go after lunch, but we're going to come back with renewed vim and vigour. People that are buried here were, in a sense, punished because they were poor. That's the short version. And so they were buried here away from public sight, behind high walls, in an unmarked grave, in an unmemorialised field. So it's about remembering a place where poor people were appallingly treated. You know, they became poor through an accident of birth or an accident that happened to them because their mother was poor. You know, their babies buried here, you know, days old, months old. And in the time of the virus, that kind of death toll was mounting and the places where people were dying were kind of similar. The places where certainly there was significant death toll were in the underfunded old people's homes and in a, in a sense that's what the workhouse was it was people who were no longer economically productive that were kind of hidden away we could say well maybe it's not so bad as that now but in a sense that's kind of been inherited so i hope what might happen here is that it becomes a place for reflection a place to kind of walk and remember it might not be remembering a particular death of a particular ancestor but it might be remembering those people that died, whether from the virus or that are buried here. Thanks there to Bathscape tree planters, Richard White, and also the Bath City Jubilee Waits who played the wonderful folk music. 
we're going to meet a man who's a local historian and who's made it his mission to discover all he can about the Bath workhouse and its burial ground. His ancestors were buried up there and their names were read out in the Walking the Names project. Here he is. My name is John Payne and I'm a Bath boy from Lower Western. So I first found out about this about 10 years ago from someone in the family who was doing family history. And he said, did I know that two of our great grandparents were actually buried up here? And I said, no. I said, where? And he said, oh, well, you know that field on the Wells Road? Well, that's the burial ground for the workhouse. And uh, so I started to look into it and I became totally fascinated by it. I mean, how this very large institution had existed up here on the top of the hill, trying to deal with the ongoing problem of poverty. I mean, because most of it was about poverty. So these people had all been corralled into this large building up on the top of this rather cold and windy hill. And first of all, they sent the bodies back to the parish that they'd come from. But that proved to be quite expensive. And the workhouse was about actually doing everything cheap. So they decided to start burying them round the chapel, which is over on the Midford Road. And they put about a thousand bodies over there, but then they were running out of space. They already owned the large field next door, which is now part of St. Martin's Garden School, because that was where they grew their vegetables, which was another way of actually running the workhouse cheaply, because obviously they used the paupers as the labour, so they didn't actually have to pay wages. So they then bought the next field down the Wells Road, which borders onto the modern Oolite Grove, and they started putting the bodies in, and it's um, 3,182 people who were buried here between, I think it was 1858 and 1899. And as we always say, quote, their only crime was poverty, unquote, and that is the fact of the matter. So what we've been trying to do in recent years is to actually remember those people and to remember them not just as a big number, but to remember them as individuals. You can probably see there's a small yew tree, the tree of life and death, which we planted a couple of months ago when we were up here planting bulbs and cowslips and sowing wildflower seed and that sort of thing. And that particular site in the centre of the field was where we'd actually had this very informal memorial going on for several years with people bringing up flowers and flags, flags with the uh, names and the dates of some of the people buried here, including my great-grandparents, as I said right at the beginning, Charles and Anne. I mean, they're story is something I've written about in my most recent book, which is called A West Country Homecoming. They had come into Bath from a village called Chewton Mendip, right up on the top of the Mendips, 
for some reason, and we don't really know why, Charles decided he wanted to do something different. So he came to Bath, presumably to make his fortune, and he got married here and he had a couple of kids. And unfortunately, he didn't make his fortune and he didn't make enough money to actually look after himself in old age when he was ill and infirm and his wife was ill and infirm and all that sort of thing. I I mean, you know, what happens to people when they get a bit old like me now? (laughs) What do you think it means to you and to the families of the people buried here? What's the importance of remembering their names? Well, I think it's actually writing a historical wrong. I mean, I think people have a right to life, but people also have a right to death. And the two things that I think should happen to any dead person is, first of all, that they should be decently buried with as many as their, of their friends and relations around them as possible. And, I mean, we all know that that's come up as an issue very much during the pandemic because of the limitations on fu- funerals. And the other thing is, well, what about the living? What about the people who are going on? Um, and the tradition of the way where people eat and drink and they have music and they tell funny stories and sad stories about, you know, the person who's passed. So finally, John, what do you want to happen from here on in in terms of this beautiful field that we're standing in now and all these trees are going in? What would you like to see happen? Well, I want it to be somewhere that looks good, but also somewhere that has things going on. And I think that's very much up to the local community up here on Odd Down. I just want it to be used by people, whether that's for organised games, for informal children playing, for dog walking, for picnics, for parties, for music. Yeah, I mean, this should be an amenity. My own view of the matter is that there should probably be some sort of permanent memorial up here, which would probably be a great hunk of bath stone with something carved in the side like their only crime was poverty. But on the other hand, local people may want something different. And, I mean, quite honestly, I feel I've done my bit up here, yeah, and I feel happy about it. I mean, when we had the band playing it up here, I lay on the grass and I thought, I thought, all you dead bodies out there, we've actually done something. We've actually done something about this historical wrong which was perpetrated on you. Now we have a real treat for you. My next guest is a woman who's well known to walking festival goers as she often leads a walk around Bath cemeteries. And here she is talking about the different ways we've remembered our loved ones and ancestors. I'm Dr Molly Connorsby. I work at the University of Bristol for the Southwest Doctoral Training Partnership. My title is Collaboration Facilitator, but I also research into the social histories of dying and death. I've always been fascinated by the idea of what constitutes 
a good death and how that changes over time. And I think also we're often told that we don't talk about dying and death anymore. I don't think that's necessarily true, actually. I think we just talk about it in different ways. Our relationship to disposal has sort of gone hand in hand with, with kind of developments in the economy, if that makes sense. So obviously you could have more settled burial sites as you've got more settled communities. So as we started to develop agricultural systems and communities became more settled, so burial rituals could actually become more elaborate. Because if you look at subsistence or nomadic communities today, Often the burial rituals will be very much around just convenient and hygienic disposal. I don't want to sound too clinical about it, but, um, you know, it might be leaving a body out to the elements so that nature kind of takes its course. Whereas in more settled communities, you can settle your dead as part of that community. You can start rituals around burial and so on. In early medieval communities where you had a church, you would have a churchyard and that's where people would be buried, sometimes in communal graves, not always marked. The marking of, of burial sites actually kind of came uh, more prominent with changes in the economy. So as people got more affluent, they wanted to be buried in slightly better places, you know, so closer to the church. They might want a memorial or a brass so you'll, you'll start to see often sort of brasses listing people's achievements and uh, their status in the world and their financial status and how many children they had and, and so on. Whereas poorer people sort of continued often to be buried, you know, in sort of communal graves. If you couldn't afford a burial, we've obviously talked about people who marked their graves, the successful and the wealthy, and the parish community would pay for you to have a very, very simple interment. Remember that in the medieval period, people would have been wrapped in shrouds, you know, coffins were not such a thing. But the local community in which you would be known would, would pay their pence into the poor box and that would fund pauper burial. The Elizabethan poor laws were, as you can imagine, very, very harsh. So people could be potentially branded for, for being vagabonds or, or poor. In 1831-32, there was a huge outbreak of cholera, the first outbreak of cholera that England and Scotland had ever experienced. And what the cholera outbreak did was a, perhaps a bit like coronavirus has done for our generation. It shone a light on the social disparities, particularly in cities, because cities were on the whole the worst afflicted by this horrible disease. And it shone a light on the fact that uh, the, the dreadful, dreadful living and working conditions that many people had to cope with during that time. Edwin Chadwick was a leading civil servant and he was passionate about reforming the poor laws and he led uh, a bill uh, in 1834, which was called the Poor Law Amendment Act. In towns like Bristol and Bath, uh, they had several poor houses, and they would be for maybe anything from 10 to 100 residents. And they would be people who had fallen on hard times or were destitute or had a period of ill health and needed a small amount of help and support from the community. And those would be paid for by ratepayers' rates. What the 1834 Act did was get rid of those little local poorhouses and amalgamate them into what was called a workhouse. And the language is very important here. It was a transition between sort of poorhouse to workhouse because 
part of the driver behind the 1834 Act was this idea that there were two kinds of paupers. There was the indolent poor, the undeserving poor, and the deserving poor. I think this is a really important point to make because I think, unfortunately, it still sort of colours some of the political argument around poverty today. The workhouse was paid for by local subscription, by parish rates. They were run by local guardians. So those would be generally local business people, clergymen. Um, They predominantly were men, with some exceptions. And they were institutional. And the regime was brutal. Uh, Families were separated. Men were separated from women and children were separated unless they were nursing babies. Children were separated from their parents. They were given pointless jobs to do, uh, picking oakum or breaking rocks, uh, because the emphasis was very much on work. You had to earn your keep to be in the workhouse. They would usually have an infirmary as well, because one of the most common reasons for people to go into the workhouse other than unemployment was a period of ill health, particularly um, at the latter stages of life, older age. Of course, there was no welfare state system in those days. So people were absolutely reliant on charity in order to survive. So the system was was brutal and pretty much hated and lasted, one must remember, well into the 20th century. You can read George Orwell um, down and out in Paris in London and he writes about spending nights in what was called the spike, which was a slang word for workhouses. So it was a detested system. One of the advantages, if you will, of the workhouse is that they would pay for your burial. It was a no-frills burial, so you would have the most basic shroud, the most basic unadorned pine coffin, no handles, no brass plates. Some, but not all, workhouses had their own burial site, so Bath Workhouse had its own burial site. It also meant that you didn't get a marker on your grave, It's important to see why this was seen as stigmatising in the 19th century. It was seen as stigmatising because when you think of a Victorian funeral, you think of the elaborate, you think of the the coach and the horses with plumes, you think of the feathermen, you think of the mutes, you think of all of the sort of theatricality of a a well-heeled Victorian burial. And the pauper burial was directly in contrast to this. Uh, no no headstone, no fancy coach, uh, just just sort of interred almost, I suppose, like, a, like, like you might inter an animal. The whole point about a pauper burial, as I say, was it was meant to be, uh, you know, sort of punitive. It was, it was meant to be uh, your, your mark that you had sort of somehow failed um, in an economic system that valued people by how much money they were making. If you ever want to read the classic description of a pauper burial, read the burial of, of Nemo in Bleak House by Charles Dickens, which is sort of very unceremonious, nobody there. The clergyman seems bored and sort of races through the service in two or three minutes. The symbolic thing about pauper burial for communities in the 19th century was that it was the last way that they could strip individuals of their agency in terms of their disposal. They were given no choice, no say. Given that the 19th century was, for lots of people, a profoundly religious century, a century where you may want to make your mark, um, both in the world and in the afterlife, that's always seemed to me a particularly sort of punitive aspect of the poor laws. The sort of politics behind it are really troubling. 
I mean, I happen to think 19th century gets a, a, a bad rap. I think lots of people in the 19th century were tremendous reformers. They were trying to do extraordinary things against the backdrop of a very sort of brutal, basic, burgeoning capitalist economy. It's significant that Dickens calls that character Nemo nobody. It's like a sort of erasure of a whole swathe. Most of our ancestors, you know, most of us are not descended from gentry or aristocrats. Many of us in our family trees will have someone who was just shoved in the ground and um, forgotten about because they were economically inconvenient. So I think that's a really powerful thing to reflect on. So you can walk through any Victorian urban burial ground and you can see and read so much about the social stratification of the time. You can tell a lot about people's politics, their religious leanings, from the design of headstones, for example, from the language used. So they're fascinating little repositories of social history. I I call a walk around any graveyard, I call a conversation with the past. And actually, oddly, the unmarked burials of Bath Workhouse are also a conversation with the past because they're also an attempt to erase those stories that have refused to be erased because there's now an enormous amount of research and interest in, in pauper burial. What I find interesting is that when Beveridge published his great report in 1942, which became the foundation of the welfare state in 1948, one of the prominent features was that nobody would have to pay for a funeral if they couldn't afford it. So what's interesting to me is that the fear of the workhouse and the fear of a pauper burial uh, carried on as a thread throughout the long 19th century, through the 20s and 30s, and made its way into the Beveridge Report. That was considered an important part of people being able to live lives of security and dignity and know that at the end their burial would be paid for even if they couldn't personally afford to pay for it. Urban populations have grown a lot across the 20th and 21st centuries and there is a burial crisis happening now. I mean, we are running out of space in which to dispose of the dead. It feels a bit taboo to talk about, but that is an issue for some local authorities. You have to remember as well, in the 19th century, people weren't cremated. It wasn't really until the very end of the 19th century and into the 20th century that cremation began to become a thing. More of us are now cremated than are buried. So cremation has eased the pressure somewhat, though it creates a different set of issues environmentally. But we will have sort of burial crises again, and we will have to, as a society, as communities, confront that issue and talk about it. I think it's a good thing, because I think it makes us talk about death and disposal and what that means to us from our different religious, cultural backgrounds. But these issues that our ancestors grappled with where to dispose of people, how to dispose of people, what was respectful, what marked status, are still very much with us. They're still very, very much live issues. Uh, they, they don't go anywhere because we will all, we will all die. Memento mori.
Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. You can find out more about Bathscape by visiting bathscape.co.uk. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer, and I hope to see you next month when we'll be meeting four generations of farmers. Mm-hmm.